we won't do the poetry today because I didn't do it on Monday. And you, everybody knows that we're off next week, right? Next week we don't. You get a break. You get a break. What I had planned to do originally was um, take the half of the class next week when we do come back the following week and finish up Bobby Dick and start Go Down Moses. So if, if you can read the first couple of stories and Go Down Moses, I think you're going to enjoy them. They're short. The bear is going to be a testing story. It's a, it's a long one and it's a little bit complicated. It's broken into parts. I think you've got the parts in the, in the notes that I've given you so they should help. It's a, it's a deceptive book because it belongs to a southern agrarian world, the world of the South. It's very, very different from the, it'll be very different from Melville. Um, but something's going to happen at the center of this book that is um, going to be painful to see. And we're going to see that the, that the sense of sin that, that's at work in um, Isaac and the southern culture is very, very different from the sin or the disorders we're seeing in, in New England, in Melville. So it, it'll be interesting to put those two things together. How's your powers of concentration, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, when we come back in a week, all of you have a good break the next week, I hope, I hope Lent, um, I hope it's a good Lent for you. You know, I'll continue saying that through Lent. Lent is a special time for me, <coughs> for sure. Okay, let's start. Um, a couple of things this week. Um, I didn't get that up. Too busy this morning. I'm going to just do a quick review of some of the more important chapters that we looked at last week. And then I want to return to two of the things that we picked up and um, review them um, as a way of preparing for what we're going to do today and what I think is, a, is going to be a blow away revelation. We'll, we'll see what happens. Um, very, very quickly, remember that in the plot, we, we move from the opening of the book at land and Melville's critique of Christianity. It's a Christianity that's failing. We went out to sea with Ishmael, and um, I called the next 20 chapters roughly setup chapters. They're all chapters in which Ishmael is doing meditation in every aspect of whaling. And, and as a matter of fact, it, it seems to me at some point we reach a point and realize that even though each one of the things is about whaling, it can be the triworks or the deck or the mast or a boat, the monkey rope, it can be the whale itself, we could carry his meditations over from things that have to do specifically with whaling to every aspect of life. If we're in computer business, there's, there's no way we couldn't apply it to carry it over because it's universal. What he's doing is teaching us to see by analogy. So we should be able to take everything in life. There's nothing we could leave out. If what he's saying is true, all things are interconnected. 
So he's teaching us a very different way of reading it. It certainly sets off in contrast to Ahab, because Ahab is just one-dimensional. He's got his mind focused on killing that whale. So we see in Ahab the practical intellect at its worst. I want to get from here to there. Ishmael is open. He's meandering. Um, his, he lets his mind muse. You guys leaving? See you later. Bye, Ron. Bye, Michael. <laughs> Bye, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that didn't sound too final. <laughs> um, where was I? Um, Ishmael is, yeah, Ishmael is teaching us to read um, along the lines of what I've told you before, Alan Tate calls the symbolic imagination. I'm going to print that essay off um, for you guys because I think it's one of the more important essays in the 20th century, really. He has uh, two essays that are in sequence that really belong together, and in, in one of them he's making the argument that the Protestant mind, because it's because of its basic tenets, the belief that nature's depraved, that the effects of the fall were complete, that they lack that um, way of looking at things. Um, the prime example for, for Tate is Dante. I'm going to read that passage. I'm going to bring it when we start Go Down Moses. Because in that passage, he shows that Dante begins with the ordinary things. St. Paul, we know the invisible things by the things that are made. He starts with the ordinary things and finds in ordinary things a way to God, to move up the hierarchy of being. We, we should be able to find you know, bread and wine. You know, I mean, how, can, how much more ordinary can you get, bread and wine? That there is a hierarchy of analogies leading us to God. So Ishmael is teaching us that. And he's also teaching us to trust him because um, what's going to happen at the end is going to be so improbable, it's going to take its place with all the other improbable <coughs> stories you know, that he's telling us. So one of the questions that we have to ask as we're reading Ishmael, it seems to me, is are we open to miracles? Um, one of the reasons I believe in the Eucharist, strongly as I do, is because I believe in fairy tales. Um, the whole world of fairyland opens to us in the church. Truly, you know, it's sad um, that we've lost the sense of that. But. Um, so just very quickly, um, remember the Pequod meets the rosebud and they, they did, I think that's <coughs> Stubbs' word, they, they diddled them, tricked them out of the, the, um, the dying well and the, the cache of uh, amber, ambergris. And um, <coughs> When Ishmael first talks about it, he, he quotes that line from Paul and wonders how incorruption can come from corruptible things. Because out of this foul whale that's smelly and dying, at the center of this whale is some good. By the way, hold on to that. I'm, I, this, this whole thing's sort of amazing. I'm really, I'm so grateful to you guys to pull me out of my cave. I'm not kidding. To do this book again, I mean, this has been. A, I can't. I, part of me wants to go back to UD. I had no plans to go back because this book is probably going to see me in my grave. But mm. um, 
We'll bury it. It's been a wonderful revelation. I mean, I've just, I haven't looked at it in ages, and doing this with you has just opened the book tremendously. Remember this image of the ambergris, of this, this um, incorruption, this sweet, ar aromatic, perfume quality thing out of the corruptible body, this decaying body, be because it relates absolutely directly to everything we talked about, began to talk about concerning Pip last week. Uh, that's going to be a major thing. I'm going to come to it shortly because it's, it's far more important than I think most people realize. And um, after that chapter we, where he draws on that passage from Paul, there's that scene in which the men are gathered together to squeeze the, go the gobules into liquid. And, and that's the, um, the squeeze of the hand chapter in which Ishmael has the second or third turn. Remember the first one is in the, the one early on with Quiqueg and the second one may be the Grand Armada when he speaks about the, that tranquil joy at the center of his soul, no matter what's going on around him. Hold on to those passages. Pip's going to crystallize all of them. It's just amazing that in the center of that Grand Armada disturbance, remember, he said nothing could disturb that peace and quiet and joy at the center of his soul. How far away is that from Ahab in his tortured soul? And you remember the description. It's really, we talked about it. Um, um, I'm, I'm sorry Debbie's not here. Um, because I thought um, her comment and some of your other comments I thought were really right on. Um, that as he squeezed it, he felt all the, what he calls the acerbities, the irritations and the, the chafings of life fall from him. And he began to look into the eyes of his fellowshipians lovingly. <laughs> they probably looked at, I mean, imagine that for any of us. People would look at us strangely and think, what, what is wrong with that person? Um, and he says he felt himself falling away from that quest, dissociate himself from it. So that was an important moment for Ishmael. In the Triworks, we get the first glimpse of something demonic in the quest. It's hidden, remember? The flames are shooting into the night sky, and the light is casting this um, fiery, um, well, glaze onto the men, and particularly the harpooners, with their teeth showing, and it's glaring and devilish. It's, it's a nightmarish vision. And he actually describes the ship at that point as, as a rushing into hell, burning up. Um, we can say it's hallucinatory, or we can say it's symbolic. It's an actual vision of what's hidden beneath the souls of the men as they pursue this quest, this devilish sort of quest. Um, <coughs> chapter 99 was the doubloon chapter in which most of the main figures appear before the doubloon on the mast and do a reading. And what we see there is every one of them reads for his own ideas. They find in the doubloon what they bring to it from themselves. So we can either come out of that saying the truth is relative, it's just different for each person, and I don't believe that's what Melville's saying. Or we can say there's some truth to what each of them sees, but there's something larger. 
that none of them sees. And it seems to me if that's true, the only answer to that is the book itself, because um, everything that takes place in that book um, includes all of the relative positions and something larger, this larger Catholic universal objective thing, this thing that happened. <clears throat> so containing all of these private subjective readings of the doubloon is the larger story of the book itself, what we're reading. <clears throat> um, the Pequod meets the Samuel Enderby and it's there that Ahab encounters a captain who lost his arm and you remember it, the captain and the doctor do nothing but make fun. They, they laugh it off. It reminds me of, uh, it's hard to, it, they're so glib about everything. Their, their response to the mystery is to blow it off, laugh it off. Um, and when Ahab returns to the Pequot from that visit, remember he twists his leg and he has to have the leg built. That's the first um, meeting with the carpenter where he has to have the, his, a new leg built. And what happens then, I, I really believe that's the turn here. That these are, the earlier chapters were all set up. They're preparing us for the end, the trust, to develop a way of reading. But once we reach 100, the balloon I think is 99, the Samuel Enderby is 100. Once we reach 99 and 100, a turn takes place. Because at that point, we're no longer getting the world through Ishmael's eyes, medi through meditations. The focus is almost strictly on Ahab. And what happens then is we, we enter his psyche, we get thoughts, and we hear all these engagements between him and Pip particularly, and him and um, the carpenter and the blacksmith. And it's interesting that in each of those scenes involving the carpenter and the blacksmith, we get um, Melville's treatment of what we can call the mechanical materialist man. The, the, the carpenter is described in terms of a materialist philosophy of life. His response is to take everything and treat it as if it's replaceable. Um, and the, the blacksmith does the same thing. We would call them mechanics. Today we'd call them the, the, AI, the AI people, the artificial intelligence, that man is nothing more than a computer. Um, and um, if there's a problem with him, um, all you do is replace a part. So in both of those figures, we get a Cartesian, a Descartes, Cartesian view that the whole is the sum of the parts. Something happens to a part, you can replace it. Remember the difference. Aristotle said the whole is greater to and prior to the parts because for Aristotle, there was a nature to things. Now stop and think about that just for a moment because it's really important. According to, to Aristotle, there's the whole is greater and prior to the sum of the parts because there's a nature. Remember in our, when we talked about the city, when we did Dante, the polis. The polis was the optimum condition in which an individual could achieve his nature. Because in the polis, people work together to learn. Remember in the, in the tribe and in the empire, they don't. The empire is too given to technology. The tribe is given too much to the bloodline. So the human individual can never fully realize himself, or rarely, in either one of those conditions. It's only in the mean that the individual comes to himself, realizes his nature, because it's already there, potentially, in every human being. 
The question is, do you have a culture, a regime, that's so constructed that it, that it, that it responds, um, what's the word that I'm looking for, optimally? It's conducive to the very nature of the soul itself, so it can help people become who they were given to be. That's the polis. Doesn't have strict boundaries. It's a, it's a theoretical construct. Was that clear? We have a nature. It's there prior to our realizing it. Otherwise, how would we get there? Yeah. Um, and you can't measure it by parts. Whereas Descartes said, the whole is just the sum of the parts. You can take in. You can lose a leg and replace it, and you'll be okay. It's a very mechanistic way of looking at the world. Not so for Aristotle. So you can or cannot replace it with <clears throat> Not in Aristotle's or Thomas's, St. Thomas's view, because they understand that we have a nature, that God gave us a nature. And stop and think about that. I mean, it's a good question, too. To, if, if, God, if, if part of our nature is from God, mm -hmm. can we realize that nature without his help? So it's much more than the physical parts, right? In a mechanistic view, we're the sum of our parts. If a part falls away, if we lose an eye, you replace it. If you um, lose a, a knee, you have a knee replacement or a hip replacement or you know a heart a heart replacement. Or um, if we have a nature, it's prior to, it's greater than. And if there's something divine to that nature, we can't we can't realize it without God's help because it's greater, far greater than any materialist notions of ourselves can see. Yeah? So those last chapters are important because Ahab's dealing with Pip on the one hand and then these two technician figures, the, the carpenter and the blacksmith, okay? Um, and it, it's in those chapters that Ahab has his leg made and Kukla gets ill and makes the coffin. All this making, this technological making takes place. And it's also during those chapters that, that Ahab loses the ship's instruments. He, um, the quadrant he loses, the compass, and the log and the line. And he remakes a cod, a, the uh, compass, but he does it in order to show his power over those things. So we can see in that series of chapters that Ahab is increasingly distancing himself from nature He's not learning to nature, nature, he's not responding to it anymore. He wants absolute control over it. It's as if it's a sign of what happens when a man wants to kill something, that he has to completely estrange himself from nature to do it. So we see a man symbolically losing all contact with nature, any bearings. But, and it's also at this time, it has to be said, that we see him at his tenderest. I don't think that's an accident. It, isn't it, I mean, haven't, I'm sure all of you have seen this in a movie and I can't believe you haven't experienced. If you get close to death or you get close to a fatal moment, isn't it likely that you feel most dearest about the things you're going to lose then? Mm -hmm. If you're going to commit a, a sin, let's say, I would think before you did it, it that something goes on in us that calls to mind the most important things in us, the things we lose. C.S. Lewis does that in some of his novels where somebody's gonna do a horrible thing and right at that moment there's a flash you know, of all the things that's most dear to that person that he feels he's gonna lose when he does it but he can't stop himself, goes through with it. 
So that's just a quick review. I want to um, call to mind now just the plot. Remember, from this point on is what we can call the crisis. It's emerging. It's very slowly um, shaping, um, taking shape. Um, it begins with the the doubloon and the leg making episode, <coughs> and then it um, then it goes on to those um, episodes in which Ahab will speak with Pip and with Starbuck in tender ways. He'll actually cry you know, with Starbuck at the rail. I want to I want to go through those because they're so important. I'll come back to that in just a minute. And I, I introduced the notion of doubling, and this is so crucial to what we're about to do. Um, so I want to just take a minute again to remind you what we talked about. Doubling is that technique that an artist uses as a way of um, revealing something about a character that I think he probably finds hard um, in his treatment of the character itself. So for example, and you, the, I think probably the masters of it are Charles Dickens and, and Dostoevsky. Shakespeare does it sometimes, but um, I, I think it, it, it becomes a more prominent technique in the 19th century in England and in countries that are under the influence of pro the Protestant mindset, which is enormous at this time. Um, because the, the, the artists continue to hold up an ideal of a heroic, kind of heroic man. It, it, it's, a, it's a leftover, and it's something in our soul from Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, you know, forward. That there's something good in human beings. And in Dickens, Dickens will take a character who's essentially good, but he'll show a double, he'll bring a double into his story as a way of showing something evil in that man that he can't show in the good man. Because to do that would ruin him. Respectability is too important. Remember the moral code, the, the whole decline into a moral code in Christianity. In England, it's the, it's the respectable gentleman. And even in Russia, there's something of that because by that, by 19th century, mid-19th mid century, Russia has adopted most of the Western values by then. So Dostoevsky does the same thing. Dostoevsky will hold up a, a character like Raskolnikov or some of the characters in his other novels and he will set next to him another character who's, who's a double. Symbolically, he's an image of something evil in that man that he can't show without completely discrediting the main person with all of his respectability. Melville's doing something, everybody following that, this technique. Melville's doing something like that, but radically different. I suggested last week that Pip um, is an image of something in Ahab and I think in Ishmael and in all men that all of the men in this book are absolutely out of touch with except maybe Ishmael. Um, Sue called him an innocent. I think that's a good word. He's, he's an innocent. Remember when he gets abandoned when ship um, when stuff goes after the whale and he says you jump again I'm going to leave you and he does. When he's abandoned he's left um, to himself in that expanse of sea, that infinite expanse, and he just feels utterly lost and probably goes under for some time and, and has this, um, Tom used the word last week, mystical vision. I think it's a perfect description. He sees the infiniteness of God's 
world and sees God's foot on the treadle, that there's some creative work going on, in, imaged in that treadle. And when he returns to the ship, people call him mad. Now stop and think about Paul would have been called mad to the Jews. I hope that's clear to everybody. So Melville's not out of range here. This is not a stretch. When Paul had his vision of the heavens and returned to the Jewish world, the Jewish world would have seen him un unseated, just that he'd lost something. <coughs> the sailors call him mad, and there's that description where the, the madness is closer to the wisdom of God than the, the kind of wisdom that people think they possess when in fact they don't. Um, we're, I'm going to read these passages because they're so important to what's going on. But a couple of things to note about what happens with Pip then. When he comes back, there's that scene where Ahab wants to test the speed of the boat and he has them um, release the log in the line and it snaps. And I think it's Tush the Manx man, I think, calls Pip to help him pull it in. And as they're drawing the line in, Pip's going, Pip's trying to come up. Don't save him. He's a coward. Because he's so aware of himself as a coward. He shames himself repeatedly. I'm going to do, I want to read those passages because they're so important. A few chapters later, um, um, Ahab and Pip will be together. And Ahab will, no, he actually, it begins there in that chapter. Ahab sees how badly the shipmen treat Pip. And he says, come here. He's black. He's looked down on. He's an idiot. He's mad. All the people, the sailors scorn him. Ahab is the only man who feels any sympathy for him. He says, come here. And he takes him under and says, I will not leave you again. Pip takes his hand and he says, call the blacksmith and have him... Um, what was the word? Yeah, the can't remember the word, but it's when you, it's a nailing, it's a, can't remember his word, but fix his hands together so they'll never be separated again. A few chapters later when Ahab comes up on deck to look for the whale because he himself wants to take over the masts and search for the whale, doesn't trust the men, he says to Pip, stay below. <coughs> and it, he, it's during that <coughs> period, sorry. When he says to Starbuck, stay below, stay here, do not go down when we lower for the chase. He leaves Pip in the cabin and Pip sits in Ahab's seat. For a moment he's Ahab. Now remember, if, if he's an image of some inherent goodness, which I, I believe that's what he images, he's seen this beatific vision, this mystical vision of God at the, at the bottom of the ocean. If he's an image of an intrinsic good, how often do people in this Calvinistic world who believe in man's depravity see man's inherent goodness? How many? And let me put it, let me put this differently for a Catholic world because we're supposed to believe it. How many of us at a point when we're committing a sin, when we're doing something we know we're not, or aware of our own sins, how many of us are aware of that intrinsic goodness, can actually see it inside of us? So this image of Pip, as, a, as he's an image of what modern psychologists would call a dissociated being. Remember when he talks about himself, he talks about himself in the third person as if he's somebody else. He's completely dissociated. Because in this world, 
few people can acknowledge that goodness. But here he is. When Ahab goes up on deck, Pip's sitting in his chair. It's like Ahab is leaving that inherent goodness behind. And we know he will, because from that moment, all the chases begin. Um, so Pip images this intrinsic goodness, this madness that is close to God's wisdom that the men don't have. Ahab is in sympathy with it. He feels it. He sees something of it. Um, and interestingly, right at that moment when he's most intense, because the chase is going to begin. So I don't think it's an accident that Melville introduces Pip at this time, the, the revelation he had and all that happens afterwards, because it's a way of... It's a way of reminding us that when somebody is even that much more determined to sin, this is the part of him we should never forget. Pip is there till the end. He, he will go down with everybody else, but that's an image of that goodness. I really believe that. Otherwise, explain it. It, it makes no sense. Particularly when he says, join our hands, fix our hands together. They're joined. <coughs> He's doing everything he can to so a dissociated image while showing how intertwined, fixed they are together. Um, so we talked about this doubling um, and how important it is because it, it reminds us of the good in Ahab and all the other men that I think they've lost sight of. That's going to become even clearer in the scenes with Ahab because in the, in the, in the last few scenes, those are the scenes where he's very tender with um, Starbuck. He cries, sheds a tear in the ocean says to Pip, I will never leave you. He says to Starbuck, stay on board. Don't, don't lower it with me. Um, there are those very, very tender moments. So we're, we're, we're reminded that there is this deep goodness in Ahab's character. If we don't see that, if we don't feel it, I think we're missing the real nature of the tragic fall that's involved. Okay, let me stop for a minute. Any questions? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something that's a setup now for the end because it's getting close to this. Bottom of page 11 in your notes. What is this? If you, uh, right above here, if you unscrew your navel, the rectum falls off. Mm -hmm. Pip's words are prophetic of God going about the world, Blackberry. What is that? Blackberry. Mm -hmm. Blackberry. It's in the text. It's in the text. It's just, it's, it's <laughs> It's like God going about the world being fruitful, you know, oh. blackberry, picking blackberries, just um, harvesting. Yeah, harvesting. <coughs> you know, when it's blackberry season, you go into the field and you get the family out and everybody picks blackberry. Picks blackberry. Picks blackberry. Picks huh? Gets chiggers. <laughs> Don't be negative. That's a, supposed to be a time of celebration. It's God doing this. God doing this. Too, I guess. <laughs> He's not bothered by him. Okay, very quickly, I want to. I'm going to take a very few minutes. I've got to. have got to do this quickly, and I apologize in advance for the rush, but I've got to do this. To get where I'm going, I've got to go back for a moment. So, what I want to do is enlarge the historical context. Um, uh, uh, concerning um, church corruption. Um, our focus 
up to this point has been on the New England world and its hypocrisies, its failures. Melville seems to me is pretty clear about it, and it it seems to me if we read it, there's nothing in Melville that's judgmental. I hope that's clear. He 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 lets this he lets this culture judge itself. He just presents the culture in this comic way, but we don't get an artist we don't get an artist going to see how bad they are. He doesn't he never judges. What he does is present a scene in this very comic through Ishmael's eyes. Remember, Ishmael's come back, so everything we're getting is the result of his having learned to see something. He's already seen it. I hope that's clear. So everything he's writing, he's writing in a very different spirit if he had sat down to write it while he was occurring. I hope that's clear. Because if he'd sat down to write it while it was happening, the opening scenes would be very dark because he's ready to kill people. Yeah? Ishmael survived the wreck. He's come back to Nineveh. So everything we get is through a transformed heart and mind. Yeah? <clears throat> so Melville never judges these characters. They're judged themselves. He presents them as they are. But if we look at them closely, we see there's something wrong in all of them. Yeah, we've gone through that. Yeah? Um, <clears throat> I focused on those because that's the focus of the book. Now I want to try to enlarge the context because I want to come back to Calvin now in a major way before we go on to the end. So I want to enlarge this context and see if I can't sharpen our focus some. So I'm going to go back to the Catholic world because the Puritans who first came here were largely fleeing a Catholic world because of its corruptions. Okay. So if we go back to Dante, to the 11th century, 11th, early 12th century. You remember when we were doing Dante that one of the great concerns of the church then that led to the church reforms was the investiture conflict. That kings and princes were actually investing or um, um, performing the ordination ceremonies for priests. Um, priests were buying and selling property they were under the influence, the direct influence of kings. They were answerable to kings. So the, the, the pope and the authority of the church was loosening in a horrible way, and it led to all these sins of simony, selling church properties. Remember, we did all of this in Dante. Dante is very truthful in his treatment of all of that. Um, the hell is full of Catholics, and it's full of popes. You, you remember the worst pope? Who was the worst pope? Boniface. Boniface, yeah. Good for you, Tom. God. I knew he was Dante got revenge. <laughs> yes. That's a good way of putting it. He did. He certainly did. Um, remember, the investiture conflict arose because the temporal princes were gaining too much control over the church. They were investing priests and and priests owed their living to princes, so they answered to them instead of the church, and the corruption just got worse and worse and worse. Um, that's um, early 12th century, roughly, the end of the 11th century. Remember, Philip the Fair, the, the, the king of, of France, got into a, um, a violent conflict with um, Boniface. This is 1303. This, during Dante's time, right at the height of Dante's maturity. Philip arrested a bishop for heresy. How can a king call 
a person to account for a spiritual sin. Heresy. That should come under the authority of the jurisdiction of the church. Pope um, Boniface um, responded appropriately to that. Philip um, went and had Boniface arrested. Um, And it led to his humiliation and eventually his death because he was so undone by it. Shortly after Philip did that, a French um, bishop was elected pope. And because of the strength that Philip had acquired at that time, the the king of France, the papacy was moved from Italy to France. Yeah. And, And that was the beginning of what came to be known as the Babylonian captivity. Where, where the center of Christendom was shifted from Rome to France. And the ba- Babylonian captivity um, lasted from 1305 to 1378. And then it was followed by this um, great conflict between the French bishops and the Roman bishops about where the seat of power was going to be, where the authority should rest. And even though it shifted back to Rome, the conflict continued. It's called the period of the Great Schism, that, that division. So even though in Dante's time, I remember saying this to you, that one of the great accomplishments of the, of the medieval church was to separate itself out from the temporal power, that, that that struggle was centuries and centuries long. We can still see the effects of it here, absolutely. Um, and that, that great schism lasts from about 1378 to 1411. And then that division, that great struggle between the two national powers was followed by what was called the territorial papacy from about 1417 to 1517. Now look, we're approaching America at this point and its founding, okay? So the territorial papacy was that period in which the authority of the papacy was handed down through dynastic lines. It produced the Borgia family, Alexander, Pope Alexander VI, who was suspected of murder, I think there was actual evidence that he had five or six illegitimate children. He had mistresses, wives. That was that period of tremendous, tremendous corruption in the church. Lots of wealth centered in Italy and Venice and Florence. And was he in France or Italy? Italy then, because it had returned by that time. Remember the papacy, the Babylonian captivity is 1305 to 1378. It's followed by the schism and then this what's called the territorial papacy where it gets um, focused on dynastic family. Power moves through a principle of nepotism, really. Mm. It produced all of these corrupt popes and this great wealth. Um, So Pope Alexander, 1492 to 1503, what happens in 1517? Luther. Luther. Look at the corruption he's dealing with. I mean, this isn't an artificial thing. And the Pope was a Medici. Yeah. Um, Luther's responding to the corruption in the church. I mean, he doesn't like the whole... I'm for, I don't want to get into the, the, the doctrinal issues here. I mean, the whole question of indulgent, indulgences and collecting money when the church is already wealthy. Think about when one of the opening... So many of the opening gestures of Pope Francis, our current Pope, you know, doing everything he can to answer what, it, in the minds of some people, is too much wealth in the church still. Francis, who's Francis's namesake? Pope Francis. 
Saint Francis of Assisi, and we know that from Dante, who embraced poverty. Remember Dante's image of him? The, the stigmata, because he married, remember Thomas's allegory, the story, the allegory? He married this beautiful thing, and what we learn at the end of that story when Thomas is done with it, the thing that he married was poverty. That he wanted to get away from the wealth. He went to the Pope to talk about them. So keep that in mind. Okay, this, America is on the verge of being created. Luther nails his theses to the wall 1517. The, the founding in America is going to take place one century later. We're that close in time. Now, the reason I wanted to call this to mind is, is this. Just I'm not, wait, a couple of other things to keep in mind in what's going on. The, um, the printing press, 1440. So materials are being widely dispersed and the, the Bible is, is being made available to all people, all classes. So there's this great period of intellectual stimulation where people are confronting the Bible for the first time and being overcome by it and, and reading it according to their own lights, making of it what they wanted. So they could make lots of claims. If you look at the earlier reformers, Zwingli, um, Huss, um, Who's that kid, the English? I can't Wycliffe. remember. Who? Wycliffe. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Wycliffe and all the others. There's this spirit of independence where people are coming to terms with the Bible for the first time and so inspired by a religious fervor, but, but certainly without the help of a long tradition of learning behind them. Luther had Thomas available easily. He hated Thomas. He hated Aristotle, that whole way of thinking was objectionable to him. The same thing was true of Calvin. Calvin hated those people. The Copernican Revolution takes place in 1543, which cast into doubt every form of authority. If everybody had been wrong because they assumed the, the, the Ptolemaic scheme of things was, was the way the world was and suddenly science shows that that's not true, what can you believe except science? That's the beginning of the scientific revolution that has brought us to this point today. Islam is attacking on borders everywhere. And as, as a matter of fact, the pressure on the Germanies is making the, the German princes make compromises um, in order to gather people together to resist the threat from Islam. So politics is directly influencing the church and what's going on in the church at this time. And this is the time when the great reformers, Wycliffe and Huss and Zwingli and Luther and Calvin are you know, all speaking to their countries and bringing these new ideas. They don't have a long tradition behind them. The Bible is new. These are independent men. Now, what happens in this period, I'm, I want to just focus it sharply for a second. There's this general corruption in the Catholic Church. People are horrified by it. If they have any grievances against the king, you can be sure that there's a, some religious aspect to it because the church has so, been so closely allied with the powers. So if there are any resentments against the political situation people live in, they're going to find another reason to revolt against the church. So there's these massive revolts across Europe. Um, it's going to lead to religious wars for a century after. I mean, France and Germany are going to go to battle with each other, and, and there are going to be factions within the nations, within France. The, the 
Catholics and Protestants are going to kill each other. It's going to be a bloodbath. One of the reasons for the modern secular state, get rid of these religious fanatics who are causing all this violence, disturbing the peace all the time. So it, this is the situation, the Black Death decimated, destroyed a generation. There's political unrest everywhere. Um, the church is coming apart because of its corruption. Okay. In England, a couple of, you know that the Catholics were disenfranchised. They could not practice their belief because Henry had already made himself the supreme head of the church. And anybody who didn't follow his edict was um, susceptible to imprisonment and even execution. Um, the Puritans were, were dissatisfied with the Anglican reforms. So they stood out the, outside of the church and they were persecuted by Henry as well and, and the, the rulers who followed him. So out of England came these two, I mean lots of groups, but we can identify two of them in general ways. One of them was called the Puritans. The Puritans believed that the Anglican church was the true church. They just didn't believe the reforms went far enough. So they still identified with England and the Anglican church, but they wanted to see the reforms go farther. The separatists believed that the Anglican church was not the true church, that like the Catholic church, it was a corrupted church. They wanted complete independence. So the separatists, the Puritans, go north into the Netherlands and they found um, churches up there, but at some point they become discontent because they know they've lost their English heritage and they can't practice the religion the way they want because there are other influences there. So they decide to come to America with the, with the aim of, of founding a place where they can practice religion according to their conscience. Okay? Now, the doctrines behind those two groups are fundamentally Calvinist. There's probably a small element of Luther in there, but Luther still looks back to a Catholic tradition. He believes in consubstantiation, even though he undermined the priesthood, he believes in consubstantiation. Calvinists didn't. Calvin believed there should be no priest, and he did not believe in the real presence at all. Luther did, even if he misconceived it. Remember, I went through the difference between consubstantiation and transubstantiation. Luther believed in consubstantiation, he still believed in the real presence. Calvin did not. The people who left England were Puritan separatists. Their whole mental construct of the church was Calvinistic at its roots. They went to America, they began to fragment the, the way they have. I mean, and, and remember, the, so the, the, the two denominations that are most represented there are Presbyterians and Congregationalists, both of which are Calvinists. Congregationalists are different because they believe each congregation has its own internal authority. It's not answerable to anybody. So it continually fragments if there's differences on this whole question of authority. And what happens is they form a theocracy and they become just as rigid as the Catholic Church that they rebelled against. Cast people out the communities divide, but they remain congregational. So when Moby Dick opens, what we see are basically Quakers, Congregationalists, Presbyterians. That's the, those are the denominations, that's the, the, the religious culture that we just went through when we read through the opening pages of Moby Dick, okay? You all with me? So we're focused now. The point I want to make here is 
Calvin is fundamentally there. The beginnings of America in its religious terms, its, its religious roots, is Calvinistic. Now, hold on to this, because one of the, one of the, one of the parishioners in the evening class, who, who is actually a convert from, Bap, from, the, from um, the, the Baptist world, said, nobody believes those things anymore. I, I, I want to get to that in a second. I know that. And I think there's an answer to that. I don't want to get into that, because that's a big cultural problem. Just, just to make, If you try to hold on to Calvinist tenets, I'm going to get to them in a minute. Reason is corrupted. Reason is corrupted. If you live in a world in which reason is making so many advances and you're making material changes and you're getting more secure, more settled, more comfortable, but reason is making the progress it is in the sciences, in medicine, discoveries, in practical things like the, the printing press, um, electricity, um, I mean, look at what happens in technology in the 19th century and move forward. How easy would it be for you to hold on to Calvinistic beliefs when reason is doing all this other stuff? I mean, you'd find yourself absolutely out of tune with some good. So people continue to hold on to their Calvinistic beliefs or practices when they cease to believe the founding tenets. That's my short answer. I just want to leave it there if I can, because I want to get to this. What are the most important principles of Calvinism? There are four marks for Calvin. One is a hatred of the flesh. A contempt for natural law. If you remember from Dante, the all positive law, the laws that we make in our world, have their basis in natural law. And natural law has its roots in divine law, in God's own nature. Is, is Muslims can believe God can go against his own will. I mean, to me, it's, it's the, what do you call it, the, the principle based on the will. It'll come to me later, but... We believe that there's no way God can do that. God is all good. There's nothing that he can do contrary to himself. He can't go against himself. There's a law. There's a way, a nature to God. He can no more against, go against himself than he can perform an evil act. And he's all good. Um, so all natural law is rooted in divine law, and all positive law comes from natural law. Remember, nature's corrupted according to the Calvinistic way of looking at things, Luther too. Nature is fallen, completely fallen. It's corrupt. The third is a distrust in human reason, and that would follow because if you don't reason in law, Thomas says law is a product of reason. They're absolutely intrinsically related to each other. If divine law goes, so does reason, because reason is rooted in God. It's the source of reason. God's wisdom is reason. And finally, total depravity. Those are the marks of Calvin. Now there's an acronym that the, Count, the Calvinists use, TULIP, to set out its principles. And I want to just go over these very briefly with you because we're getting to this, this 
revelation that I came to. I've been skirting around it for the last 10 years of my life and it was right in front of me. It just knocked me over. TULIP, an acronym for their beliefs. The T stands for total depravity. It's a complete inability of man to do anything on his own, any good, because he's depraved. Right? The Catholic believes that man's inherent good is still intact. We saw that with Dante, remember? But it's not sufficient to get to heaven. Remember, the, the virtuous pagans are there at the outset of, but they're in hell. Otherwise, how do we explain good acts? Good things continue to go on. According to a Calvinist, nobody could, unless Christ is behind it. But what if you're an agnostic or a disbeliever and you're doing all these good things? Where do they come from? There's an inherent goodness in man. I'm saying this all the way, by the way, all of this, because I really believe this has touched all of us, whatever our beliefs. I believe Catholics living today, agnostics, to assimilate these things. They're a part of who we are. Whether we want to admit it or not, it's in, these things are in us. You, unconditional election. God chose from eternity who would be among the elect and who not. Some people were predestined to be saved, some people were predestined to be damned. And there was nothing anybody could do about it. I want to come back to this because this is one of the most studying doctrines there is in Calvin. Limited atonement, you can call it particular redemption. Um, it, it, only, it means only that those who are saved are the ones who were saved by Christ, not the ones who are predestined to be damned. Um, irresistible grace, called efficacious grace. It's efficacious, it's effective, it can't be denied. Whoever has been given grace will enjoy the favors of that grace. It cannot be resisted. The, the actions of men cannot frustrate God's will. This is so important. I want to, you know the song Saving Grace? I've loved that song until last week. <laughs> God, just the implications of it jumped out at me in a way that I love that song my whole life. Um, the perseverance of the saints. That's what Paul calls endurance. One of the signs that you're among the elect is that you persevere through trials. You don't give up. Now just hold on to that just for a second, okay? Let me see if I can put this personally together because of what happened last week, because this is a, was a shocking moment for me. It actually shook me. I was in bed and I couldn't sit down. I had to get up and walk around. And Suzanne had to listen to me for the next 10 minutes. As <laughs> so I walked around the room, I couldn't settle myself. I'd like everybody to think about this just for a second. Ten years ago, fifteen years ago, when Suzanne and I first came here, no, no, actually it was after that, we were, um, I wanted to move, we, we had moved to New Hampshire and we were in New Hampshire for about four or five years and it was our first experience in an agrarian country setting. We loved it. We raised our kids in Central California in a busy city and you know, half an hour south of San Francisco and it was the first experience in a country and I, I was just shocked at the experience of peace and quiet. You know, the country roads, telephone wires weren't everywhere in cars. If you saw two cars in town, it was a busy day you know, if you went through town. I'd, n I'd never had that experience. I loved it. I wanted to... <laughs> 
I felt like Peter when he said to Christ, let's go down. I wanted to get out of the city and go into the country and not be troubled. Um, it was wonderful. Um, and when we, um, we had to leave New Hampshire and I came here to teach. And after I taught for a while, I was ready to step back and, and we were gonna try to find a place that was more countrified. So we went to the Carolinas and we happened to get hooked up with this guy, I don't know how, who was a realtor taking us around showing us houses. And I found out that he was Presbyterian and if you knew, if you knew me at all, I mean, one of my first questions is, what do you guys do with predestination? You know, I just, I mean, it's like me to raise, it's like me to talk about religion when most people would avoid it. And his response is really interesting. He, he was clearly a committed Presbyterian. He, he would live his belief. He, he said, we don't talk about that stuff. They just don't deal with it. They don't live that anymore because the whole world has taken them beyond it. What do you do with reason when reason has done so much good if you're a Calvinist? So he, he wasn't converting, and I just thought, how strange. Most of my life, my adult life, since I first became aware of Calvin, I think I've assumed, this is so crucial to me, it may be different for you, I've assumed that Calvin was anachronistic, that nobody believed him anymore. I had that experience. I went, I go to the rec daily, try to go daily to work out, and a woman who was at the desk for a long time, she changed her position, now she's upstairs in an office, but she wore this t-shirt affirming Calvin. There's a quote from Calvin, I, I don't remember the reading of it, and something about free will, and then on the back it was another. I thought it was one of those joke shirts, you know, where you're laughing, you know. It wasn't. And I asked her about it because we were on friendly terms and learned that she was Calvinistic. I don't remember what the denomination was. I asked her if we could talk. <laughs> and she moved upstairs. <laughs> what does that say? That was what, <laughs> Sue, you stop. That was, that was before, that was before. So when we did talk, we went upstairs into her office. But she never came back? And we haven't been very friendly since. Um, I didn't want to put this on religious grounds because I was trying to be careful of her. Um, I try to do that even though I tend to open these questions. That are, um, I didn't want to get her defensive and I didn't want to go directly to religious things because I didn't want her, I just wanted to make this as detached a conversation as in a spirit of friendship. So I said, I said it was hard for me to believe that anybody was Calvinistic anymore. I believe that because I thought it had died out. Most Protestants in the New England seaboard, if you're reading Melville, you know it's died out. It was replaced by Emersonians, Unitarianism, and other, or, or it became secular. People became agnostic. Who could hold on to those beliefs in a modern world where reason is doing so much good and we become so comfortable? I said to her, if you, if you believe in Calvin and you believe that some people are predestined to be saved or damned and the soul is immortal, that a man and woman can come together, we can conceive a child, the earthly part of it, but the immortal part of it comes from God. That's something we can't do. We can't create an immortal soul. So I was trying to be as philosophic, non-religious as I could be. I said, if, if the soul's immortal and a soul's predestined to be damned, it's evil, where does that evil come from? I hope you, is that clear? The, the, where I'm going at with this? No? no. 
If a God is a good God, he can only produce things that are good. If the soul's immortal and its source is God and the soul is evil, what does that say about God? There's evil in him. That shakes me. I mean, that's why I talked with her. I, I really was, I mean, I liked her. I wouldn't do this. I don't go around knocking people over. I did it because I really liked this woman and thought, how could she, I really, I think Calvin is, is an inhuman philosophy where God is a murderer. What Calvin did was see evil in Godship. That's it. I mean, if you look at, if, by, by the way, who goes to metaphysics? Talk with a Calvinist about this thing. Who's going to go there? They will not go there. Who can? If you don't have a metaphysical view of things, you won't go there. You'll never ask that question. Her first response to me was, I'm not used to hearing language like that. Because the Calvinists, more than anything, the Calvinists will want to protect God's sovereignty. That's their fundamental belief. You cannot, stop and think about this, you cannot resist God's will. Because if you're able to resist God's will, it seems to call his power into question. His sovereignty is everything. You cannot resist it. So Calvin's logical conclusion, if he could have thought better, he wouldn't have done it. Calvin's logical conclusion is, if God's will is irresistible or absolute, what man can resist it? So the Calvinists believe you can continue to be in sin, but you will never be able to fully resist that evil. It'll take, it'll have its way. Because otherwise you're imputing a weakness to God. I hope that's logical. I hope you see the logic in it. Is that clear? No? It's funny. You've got a question. I have to sit with it. Okay. If God is sovereign, absolute will, and he wills something, it has to be done. If, if man can frustrate that for the Calvinists, it seems to call into question God's power. Let me finish the argument and then come back to it. So, so that means you can be in sin, you can be in sin, but grace is irresistible. It will finally work out. One of the signs of your election that you're among the saved is your perseverance, that you stay with it. Now, hold on to that just for a second. That's a girl here in the last year. It's a young woman. I was shocked. We talked once after that, and then we haven't talked mm -hmm. since then. Um, but um, Christopher, our middle son, married a young girl who was raised in a fundamentalist, I think, Baptist church. The guy who did my rehab when I had my knee operation was fundamentalist. I love this guy dearly. I cannot tell you. I just my, my fondness for this man, we haven't talked in a long time. Um, but I love this guy, very good guy, really good guy, deeply committed to his faith, like fundamentalist Christians are. They, their commitment to their faith is rock solid. Um, Kayla, the wife of our middle son, was raised in a fundamentalist family. She converted at UD, became Catholic. She went through a horrible time with her family because they were convinced that she married into the Antichrist family. This was the Catholics of the Antichrist. Remember, now hold on to this from the beginning. Remember, when the people came here, the Puritans and the Separatists, even though they were divided in their beliefs, the one thing that united them was their opposition to Catholicism. Because they believed that that was the corrupt truth. That was the Antichrist. 
That, and I, I've encountered that. I cannot tell you how many times I've encountered that in my life with Protestants. Either they think we're the Antichrist, or they don't believe we're Christian, which is amazing to me. They don't believe we're Christian. Um, um, but America has had, had an obsession with the Antichrist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the root of it here. Yeah, I mean, you put it that way, yeah. Wait, 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 hold on, because I want to... Okay. Kayla had been raised with this family. She told stories of... Imagine somebody growing up Calvinist being left with this question. I'm put, now, I'm putting this because I hope you can see where this is going with Ahab. If you were raised young, could anybody go through a period in their youth, if you took your Calvinistic belief seriously, and some congregations obviously do, even though that has been a shock for me, could you go through a period and not wonder? And if you did wonder and you committed a sin, what would be the effect of, of that on you? Kayla went through a period of severe depression when she was a teenager. She went to see a counselor, and the counselor's response to her was to say, he thought that was an indication that she was among the damned. Now imagine that. This is, this is contemporaneous with us. This is not a past. This is us, our time. What I learned, ironically because Randy, the, the guy who did the rehab that I like so much, what I learned, he came one time and learned that friends in their congregation were the parents of Kayla. Christopher's wife, our daughter-in-law. And that was an explosion in itself, that they knew each other, that we had indirectly, we were connected. Kayla's parents looked at Kayla, I said, as, as when she converted, as moving to the Antichrist. I mean, it was a horror. When we had them come to baptisms or something like this, you could just feel the horror when they watched the baptismal scene, the statue of Mary and the priest pronouncing these words. and. I mean, it was a strange thing to experience, and it had to be strange. I think they've softened because they, they've realized how deeply religious we are, our faith. When we get together, we say prayers. Suzanne and I say prayers five times a day, morning, mid-morning, noon, mid-afternoon. We do that daily. When people come to our house and we have dinners, we say prayers. You know, whenever they joined us, something had to happen because they, they, they felt themselves in the presence of somebody who takes a faith seriously. So I don't know what that did for... I don't think they hold on to that view of the Antichrist in it, but I, um, I think it's safe to say that. I hope they don't. But. What we learned was that um, that congregation that Randy and, and Kayla's parents were a part of split. And I believe they split over a Calvinistic doctrine. There's a question of whether they took something seriously or not. Once again, there's that fragmenting that just goes on and on and on and on. So in my own lifetime, while intellectually, I find it impossible to believe that anybody would hold these doctrines, they do. Obviously, they actively do, okay? Now, why does this matter here? Why does this matter? Faulkner loved Melville, genuinely loved him. He said he wished he'd written Moby Dick. He loved that book so much. Imagine a young poet, a, no, a, yeah, imagine a young man who loved literature growing up loving writing that would go on to be a Faulkner, reading this book. You've all experienced Melville's prose. I mean, he does amazing things with his prose if you're reading. He's got a poet's soul. What he gets into language is stunning. Imagine Faulkner reading this. Um, Faulkner will go on to write Sound of the Fury, for any of you who know about it or read it. 
If you don't know about it, the sound and the it's it's composed of four sections, each each from the point of view of one of the four characters, a part of this Compson family that's in decline. It's, it's, an image, it's Faulkner's treatment of the South in corruption, dying, declining. And this aristocratic family with all of this wealth going to hell. Literally, just what's happening. Sound of the Fury. It's a, um, we're going to do it if you guys stay, if you guys stay with me. Um, I thought about doing Light in August. In Light in August, Faulkner's actually treating this Calvinistic thing, theme explicitly. Joe Christmas is this young kid who's born out of this affair. He comes to life. Um, this old man watches over him, a janitor who knows that this, this child is born by an abomination. You can hear that word from Calvin, abomination, flesh, whore, you know, bitchery. I mean, it runs through that novel. Joe Christmas is born. This old janitor watches him and we learn as the novel progresses. Joe Christmas will undergo a, a life of crucifixions. Just, and the constant image is these fixed streets. It's like they're predetermined, predestined, that he keeps going down these streets. That's one of the metaphors that ties the book together. We learned the man who was watching and was the, the father of the girl who conceived the child out of wedlock. And the father's convinced that this child is damned. It's out of wedlock. Bitchery, horror, abomination. I mean, that's the language of that Calvinistic, you know, fire and brimstone, damnation language. When you read um, it, it, the book will end finally with, I don't even want to give it away. Mm. No, I, no, I don't no, like giving it away. A violence that's almost unheard of in literature, what happens at the end of this book. Um, Joe Christmas takes up with this um, young woman who wants to support black rights movements and they have an affair and she's deeply religious and he's not, he hates religion. He's done every, McLaren I think was the grandfather. Joe gets adopted by a grandfather who is Calvinistic, who, who beats him and wants him to follow this line because he has no other way of assuring himself that he's gonna be among the elect. Imagine that, just, so it's a ruthless, violent book and, and, and it, it's like the Ishmael story. It's enclosed in, from the point of view of um, What's her name? Leah. I can't remember the woman's name. The book begins with her running out of a window because she's pregnant. So she's carrying her wrong. But she's full of hope, has nothing but hope. You, the last thing you could say about her, she has any trace of Calvinism in her. So the whole Joe Christmas story is contained in this frame of Leah, can't, it's not the right name, who's full of hope trying to find the guy that conceived the, the child. She won't find him eventually, but something happens that's really good. So it's like the Ishmael frame that there's this great goodness looking at this Joe Christmas story. <coughs> Faulkner's looking at that Calvinistic aspect in the South, and I would say like Melville, it's an exorcism. It's, it's doing what Melville did. He's showing there's this great goodness in man and this great horror in man too that he has to deal with. Anyway, that's the background, okay? Um, Kayla came from this family. They, they are related to them now through her. I mean, they're our friends. Um, we don't see them very much. I mean, we're, we have separate lives, and, but it, it made me aware. I grew up Greek, or, Greek Orthodox. You, I think I've told you that. I converted to Catholicism. Calvin, to me, was an anachronism. 
because I came up in a Greek Orthodox world, which is sacramental, it's exactly like the Catholic world, um, and converted. So I grew up that way. The, the Protestant mind, the Protestant experience, I know largely through literature or through friends. Um, but I just, I, I really believe that Calvin had died out. And I, as I know it, intellectually it has. It has. It, as, a, as a doctrine, it's dead. There are these pockets of people for whom Calvin is absolutely alive. Now, hold that in mind. Kayla, as a teenager, going through a bout of depression and talking to a counselor who tells her she's among the damned. Imagine if you were Faulkner, having read Melville doing this. Faulkner will go on, he wrote Sound of the Fury. The opening chapter of Sound of the Fury, if you haven't read it, is told from the point of view of an idiot. You can start reading the chapter and you'll immediately get, if you think Shakespeare or Melville was hard, the opening chapter is from the perspective of an idiot. We're in his mind and it seems chaotic, because it is. And yet Faulkner as an artist did certain things to help us see a coherence, a principle of coherence, so that we can get through it understanding that even though what he's giving us is madness. What writer has ever done that before? No one had ever done, no one. It's one of the most extraordinary, it was a, what do you have, a, a, one of those, you call it the, uh, one of the, anyway, one of those most extraordinary moments in literature. Nobody's ever done anything like that. He's the most democratic writer I've ever written, I've ever read. To get in the mind of an idiot, Faulkner will take us in the mind of everybody in this story. I mean, we get everywhere. We, if you guys are, if we're still together doing Faulkner, I think you're going to enjoy what you read because it's so, it's so human. We're in the mind of an idiot. So here's my question to you guys. What if Melville had grown up, product of a Calvinistic culture, and reached some point in his life where he asked himself the question, what would it be like to be one of the damned? Has anybody ever written a story like that? Now read Moby Dick. I mean, what is this about? I've been asking these questions. If you look at all the questions about predetermination, the defiance against the gods who would do this, the evil of the center. Every time he talks about fire, he talks about fire preceding it. When he talks about joy and sorrow, he talks about the sorrow that is greater than the joy and before it. I'm going to read the passages today if we have time. Ahab is on a metaphysical quest. He's trying to get to the root of these problems. I asked this question last week. Where did these beliefs come from? We don't, we don't take on beliefs in out of nowhere. Nobody does. Where did, I hope that's clear to everybody. We grow up in the cave. We assimilate what's around us. Has there ever been a person in all of literature, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Dante, any of Dickens' character, Jane Austen, you name it, go down the list. Has there ever been a character like this in your whole reading experience? No, why not? Where did he get these beliefs? Imagine growing up in a culture that believed those things and reaching a point in your life and wondering if you were among the damned. It seems to me what Melville is doing is giving us that in a human being. If we look at all of these scenes in which he's revolting, anger, I want to strike through to get through to this thing behind it all. Who did this? This evil at the root of things. Then we've got Ahab. 
So in the essay that I've written, if you've read it at the back, you'll see that somewhere towards the end I said, I really believe, I've always believed that, that Melville, Melville was exercising Protestant demons in this story. I really believe that. Now that this thing hit me, I believe it even more. What we're getting is somebody who's actually lived these, been raised on them. How could it be different if you think about it? If you believe that, that God's sovereignty is irresistible, you, mankind cannot frustrate God's will. He can continue to sin, but if he's among the elect, he will persevere. There is at the root of this, this defiance against sin to want to be good, and there's, but there's also this inherent evil. Now, remember, the, the two things I said. One is, if God's will is sovereign, his will can't be frustrated, and man's soul is immortal, and some souls are damned, evil, where did that evil come from? Calvin's the first figure to seat evil in God. Oh, by the way, I forgot this other kid. There's a kid at the rec that I run into every once in a while last week. I mean, it's amazing how this stuff came together for me. We were having a talk, he's doing some writing, and I took a look at his, some writing, and I had a serious question, some serious things to say to him about his treatment of good and evil in his story. And, um, he said he believed that there was evil in God because otherwise he couldn't account for evil in the world. This is our world. I'm saying this because I think it goes on and we're not even aware of it. So the first thing is, if God's will is sovereign, it can't be defeated, it can't be frustrated. Man can continue, man can continue to have mistresses and believe he's among the elect so long as he persists. That's one. Two, if man has no free will, and according to Calvin, he does not, there's only one single will in the universe. Yes? Whose is it? If there is only one will, where did evil come from? I hope you see this. Play this out in people's lives. God is distressing. It just shook me. Because I've had it, I've had, I mean, it's been in front of me. I've, I've known it, I've seen it, I've sensed it. I never brought it home. And then last week it came home to me and it shook me. <coughs> Absolutely shook me. Well, a lot, a lot of people who don't believe in God say, if, if God is all good, why is there evil? Right, That's right. That's their arguments. Right. <coughs> By the way, Plato, Aristotle, St. Thomas all answered that. If you read one of the greatest books that's ever been written in history, it's a short book by Boethius called Philosoph. See oh my mind. mind. Boethius. Late Lady Philosophy. What? I'm, I've got to get the title. Boethius. He he takes all of Aristotle and Plato and puts it into a book that then it's it's beautiful. Uh, Boethius is in jail, he's going to be condemned to life, and Lady Philosophy comes to him and says, stop reading literature because it's making you soft. <laughs> Read philosophy because it's Lady Philosophy. And she puts all these arguments. It's a beautiful, it's one of the most important books that's ever been written, ever. I mean, I've read a lot of the major writers. That book belongs at the time. What year was that? I mean, oh, God, I, it had to be 6th, 7th, 8th century something. Is that it? Yeah. Here, I want your attention. Tom, put that.
damn thing away. <laughs> here, listen. So, um, what's, um, oh, here, here, Catholic position. Remember, you've heard me say this, to a Catholic, the sin, the consequences of fall were never complete. The Catholic believes we were wounded because you cannot destroy God's essence. If the essence seats in God, the ideas in his mind, there's no way you can destroy them. We are wounded. We believe that evil is a privation. Now hold on to this just for a second. Sorry for all the philosophy today, but I, this stuff is, if you don't understand this, so much of what goes on in literature will be missed. The Zoroastrians believe that good and evil are co-eternal. The Manichaeans believe matter and spirit are co-eternal in a battle. If spirit and matter, evil and good, are co-eternal, there's no reason not to choose evil. And I'm not even sure that that's a proper way of putting it, because if they're co-eternal, I don't know how you'd have free will anyway. If things are co-eternal, they're fixed. I hope that's clear. If they're co-eternal, there's no reason not to choose evil. What's the big deal? Do all the evil. I mean, I don't understand how that works out, but... Same thing with the Manichaeans who believe that flesh is evil and spirit is good. They're in that battle forever. The, a good thinker would see how ridiculous that is. The Catholic believes, Thomas, Aristotle, going back to the classics, that God is all good. There was no evil around him. He could not perform an evil act. The Islam, the Muslims believe he can. He can go against his will. Voluntarism. That's it, voluntarism. Voluntarism is the philosophy um, which gives the will primacy over the reason. Catholics should not believe that. The Muslims are voluntarists. They believe that God can do whatever he wills. He can go against himself. Catholics would say, are you kidding? God's good. He can't change his nature. He's all good. And there was nothing before him, no evil around him. Evil came into the world as a rejection of God. Satan turned away. So evil is a privation, it's a loss of goodness. We turn away from it, we lose our being. The devils in hell are shrunken, you know from Dante, shrunken figures, they're parodies of themselves. Okay? So the modern mind, the modern mind is touched by Manichaeism. I believe there's a Manichaean element at the root of Protestant world. And you certainly see it in Calvin. And remember, the Congregationalists and the, or the Puritans and the Separatists were Calvin. He's at the root of our religious founding in the North. Um, Stephen King's movies, I don't read that stuff and stop, I mean, after the shark things, but if you watch Stephen King's movies, I've, I've not read his books, but I've seen some of his movies, there's a Manichaean element that runs through him. Evil is an active thing in nature working to get at man. Look at Ahab. I want to get at this malicious thing, this, this thing that has a malice that wants to hurt. Evil is an active force in nature. Stephen King's novels are riddled with that. It's a principle in his being. I've been saying for the last nine months to you guys that 90%, 75% of the stuff coming out of Hollywood has to do with horror. There is at the root of the American soul this sense that there is this inherent or, or violence or evil in our lives. How much are Catholics infect, infected by it? Affected. <coughs> now go back to Pip for a minute. Look at Pip. 
Calvinistic? Absolutely not. If he's an image of some intrinsic good, he's that which everybody else has lost sight of. That innocence, that goodness, that's completely dissociated. Who in, on that crew sees that goodness in himself? Can Ahab see it anywhere? If there's anybody who sees it, it's got to be Ishmael, because he's the one who tells the story and presents it that way. Because if he, if he didn't see it, why would he have presented Pip? Pip is an image of this goodness that becomes dissociated. And go back to the question that I asked. How many of us, when we're aware of our sins, when we're in guilt, when we feel ashamed, continue to hold on to a picture of that goodness in ourselves? Or do we blacken ourselves, make ourselves worse? How much of Calvin is in any of us? Scary question for me, but Lois, sorry. Well, okay, what you just said, I, to me when I was reading, um, Ahab tells Pip to go down to his cabin. He also tells Starbuck to stay on the ship. And I think that, our, I, at the time I was thinking that he's trying to save what little goodness is left has. in his heart. Yes. That he wants to, you know, yeah. keep it safe. Yeah. Even though he knows he's going to continue on with his quest. And I don't, I mean, to his credit, I, yes, I couldn't agree more. To his credit, I say, not just goodness in himself, it's that there is still some goodness in him because his care is for Pip and for Starbuck. He doesn't, he, there's that touching exchange where he looks in Starbuck's eyes and he sees his family, his son that he's left behind. And it's then he says, stand board. He doesn't want to see that goodness harm, which speaks of some goodness in him. Right, well, that, yeah. And, he, so, and yet he's... His only way of preserving his own goodness is through preserving them. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he still cannot stop himself. Right. Starbuck right. says, don't go. He knows I'm gonna And he says like, he, he cannot stop himself. But, and he says that Wait, by the way, he's gonna continue he, on because that's his fate. Yes, that's what it is. Good girl. Good for you. He can't stop himself. And if he raised to believe it's fated? Yeah. Where do you get the will to resist that anyway? One of the questions I asked the beginning. Why do these people not have the will to resist him? I hope this is opening the book for you guys some, because if, if it is, I mean, if, if this is right, and I think it is, then this book really is prophetic in a way that I've been claiming all along of America. It's something Dante wouldn't have seen because Calvin wasn't, you know, a culture didn't get founded on it then. Dante grew up around a Catholic culture that was going to hell. Um, but this certainly becomes more and more prophetic and shaking, it seems to me, if you realize this is a principle of our founding. And remember the questions that I was putting a week ago. If Ahab's an image of this wanting to get back, and this is he's an image of something constitutionally American, then it's us. What was the where, what were the origins? Where did this come from? What produced this? So well, the whole book is about revenge, is it not? And so the point is, where does the revenge come from? And so you're saying those seeds of Calvinism was planted in his soul, or he, and, and that grows in him. And, yeah. And he doesn't know how to challenge that. Yeah. Well, he does. That's a, here, and I'm, I'm really, we're going to have to stop. I'm, I wanted to read passages. I'm going to wait next. I've got a whole list of, I want to go, what I want to do is go back to the beginning, to the, to the quarter deck scene where he says strike through the mask. I want to pick up some passages um, with Pip when Pip says fix more hands and he goes down. So I want to just go through some of the Pip passages. I'm just going to read them 
and I want to pick up the Ahab passages and read them. And what we'll see is this. He's a modern in this sense. He's defying the mo Freud, Darwin, who says man is a product of these impersonal forces. There's nothing human. We're a product of these impersonal forces. We're no different than they are. There's going to be lines in here where Ahab says, impersonal, I am a person. This is the person answering the impersonal. There's a human being. I mean, sometimes I wonder if, the, you know, the unborn children, the, I mean, what do you, the voiceless, how do they cry out against a world that tries to make humans something degrading that they're not, to take away our humanity? We've been talking about it from the beginning. The modern view of man is so degrading, so inhuman. Ahab, over and over and over again, is defying these forces. There's something really noble in him saying, no, I will not let this. The only answer to this is defiance. And there's something in him saying, it's predestined. This is my fate. So he's a curious mixture of something very modern. And remember the two world views of conflict, the scientific, the religious, are deeply a part of his character. He's so modern in that way trying to stand for something human, and everybody talks about it, it gets this the misreading of Ahab. Is so, everybody talks about it, and just, he's the image that shows Melville's quarrel with God. He's not quarreling with God. I mean, look at Ishmael. The, the two men are diametrical opposites of each other. Ahab is struggling to, to hold on to some dignity, I believe, that no, none of Achilles, Odysseus, We've seen it from the beginning, to hold on to some dignity that other men are losing. It began with the Iliad. It's at the center of the Iliad. But at the same time, he's holding on to these notions that are fatalistic, predetermined, and are not just fated like the Greeks. There's something evil in it. Where did that come from? Explain Calvin. Next time you encounter a Calvin, ask where the evil came from. If the soul's immortal and God creates the immortal part of it, how did evil come into the world? And if there's only one will and it's sovereign, because man has no will, there's only one will, I hope everybody sees that, where did evil come from? If you look at the metaphysics of this, there are serious problems. And he didn't like Aristotle, he didn't like Thomas, he wasn't going to get it from them, they were Catholic. So there are these serious problems at the root of the American character. Sorry to leave us here. <laughs> well, my, my consolation here, I hope it is yours, is we've got Ishmael. He's come back to show us something. Ishmael is not going to go after anybody. He's not going to kill anybody. If you read those chapters, they're full of humor. He learns to love things. He loves people dearly. So, let me stop here. Any questions? Oh, <laughs> I hope that sort of opens the book a lot. This. Mm -hmm. So the next meeting is March thirty-third. <laughs> what? It's a great Latin reading. Right. I guess it's March thirty-first. Today is thirty-first. We meet a week, two weeks from today. Thirty-first. Yeah. You guys who are latecomers on Moby Dick should have it read, and you should have the first three stories of Go Down Moses read. You guys are worse than my students. I know.
we have a life. So do they. Oh my God.